0: G'day everyone, welcome to this next Schroeder's Bible Bit moment. Um, This is a podcast uh, moment that I've done with the staff here at the school that I work at. Uh, This is during our professional development week uh, where I've done a series um, on Genesis. Uh, This is part of a series that I've titled Back to Basics because uh, the encouragement is for our staff to go back to the basic parts of the Bible that we believe in so that our theology about these moments would actually drive our practice. Uh, My encouragement to you as you listen is uh, make sure that you actually listen to these in order. Um, I've got them in order for you here, one through to five, um, and have your Bibles open as As we look at these sections, um, I uh, intentionally try to go a bit deeper with these talks with our staff uh, to challenge them and hopefully you as well to think deeply about what we believe and therefore how we live. Um, So here's the first one on Genesis chapter 1, God the Creating King. Well, this is it. This is where it all starts, Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, the first verse of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you know, but it was actually custom in ancient times to name a book by the opening words of that text, uh, which is what the Hebrews did in titling this initial book of the Bible, they called it Bereshith, which means in the beginning. Um, And then later on, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek at about 250 BC, the Greek equivalent of that, of that title, was rendered as Genesis. And so then, both the Latin and the English translations continued to adopt that, uh, and that's the title we've got today. And really, I think this is the perfect title for this book. Now, this book gives us the genesis of the doctrine of God. Uh, it gives us the doctrine of salvation. Uh, it gives us the doctrine of creation. Uh, it, this is even the, the doctrine of salvation here, sorry, the doctrine of salvation too has its genesis here in this first book, so uh, aptly named Beginning. Uh, How incredible, right? What we know about God, what we know about creation, about ourselves and about salvation begins here in this book, in this book called The Beginning, the book called Genesis. Uh, This book, uh, this book of Genesis, actually just the very first three pages or the first three chapters will provide for us the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. Jesus, the Messiah, he even has his prophetic Genesis here in the opening chapters of Genesis. In chapter 3, verse 15, we see that. You see, this is a seriously important book, one which we need to grapple with personally. Now, I'm sure that many of you have read these first three pages of Genesis over and over again. Or even if you haven't read it over and over again, I'm sure that you will be somewhat familiar with it. But I want to begin by saying, don't grow tired of Genesis chapter one, two and three. Uh, this is where it all begins, and as I've said, this is the foundation of what you actually believe. And I think the moment that you grow tired or bored or uninspired by what you read in these first opening pages of the Bible is the moment that you actually begin to forget your place and your purpose here in this world. I do think, however, that you have another motivation. The the theological pillars that are presented to us in Genesis ought to also determine your practice in your role here at Broughton Anglican College. What you believe from these first parts of Genesis ought to direct your motivations for being a person who works at a Christian school such as ours. So teachers, how and what you program, how you discipline, how you care and administer well-being programs... The way in which you present yourself and more should all be directed by your theology, particularly your theology from this part of the Bible, from Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Our Property teams and office staff, our bus drivers and horse directors, the way that you work and operate here at Broughton should direct you too. For although you may not be in an upfront teaching role, you work in direct support of it. And without you, the core business of our school would just not happen. And the opportunity for gospel proclamation here at Broughton would be non-existent. In fact, all of us here, when we were interviewed here at Broughton, you were asked about your faith and what it is that you believe about God and his word, the Bible. Here at Broughton, we unashamedly hire Christian staff. And we want staff here at Broughton to be united on the theological basics of our reformed Christian faith. And that's what we are. We are reformed evangelicals who are committed to the Bible. And this means that we hold to the orthodox teachings of the Christian faith. We hold to the 39 articles, the Nicene Creed, those ancient creeds which are based on the apostles' teaching. These are all the things that we believe, all on God's word, and these are the things which are actually first introduced to us here in the book of Genesis. Friends, as we begin this second half of the year, as we continue our jobs here at Broughton Aden College, as we continue to work in a Christian school, we need to wrap our brains around this book, around this book of Genesis. For when we do, we get back to basics. And, and it's these basics which must underpin... All that we do. Now earlier on I sent an email around to you all which has an outline of, of what I'm going to be following and um, I don't know maybe you've printed that out, maybe you've got to open on your iPad, um, maybe you've just got to open up a little screen next to you like my little talking head here or even if you swipe my head across and follow that outline as as I go along. Um, But on that, you'll see that over these next four days, I'm going to be seeking to unpack with us um, four main ideas from Genesis chapters 1 to 3. We're going to be looking at these four things. We're going to look at today, the creating king, tomorrow created for the king, uh, the next day the curse from the king, and the day after that, the serpent crushing king. Um, because of these late changes, uh, the nature in which this is delivered is gonna change a little bit, I suppose, from what uh, what I originally wanted. Um, and the hope was that we might be able to dig deep into these things uh, face-to-face and actually give a solid chunk of time to looking at these theological concepts together so that on Friday, um, you'll be able to gather together in your faculty groups, stage groups, in the groups that you work in professionally here at Broughton to not just think, um, theologically about these things, but actually to think practically about it. You see, we, we want you to think, um, how does your theology about God and his world actually affect you practically here as you work at Broughton? Your practice should be driven by these things. So, uh, these basics matter. That's what we're trying to get across here. These basics of the created world, of God and His world, about sin and creation, about salvation, these are the things that matter. These are the things that make a difference. So, let's get, excuse the pun, back to basics. Um, so, let's, let's pray as, as we dig into Genesis chapter 1 now. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that uh, we can uh, begin our day by looking at Your Word. Uh, Lord, today, um, as we do this online... Please remove from us distractions. Uh, Please um, help us to be self-controlled in the way that we uh, operate the device that's in front of us this morning. Um, Help me to speak clearly, uh, even though this is so very weird to me, um, speaking online um, in this way. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move powerfully in us. Uh, And Lord, as we think theologically about you and your word, Lord, I pray that it would impact us personally, but it would also uh, impact the way that we work here together at Broughton Angle College. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2. Uh, you should be familiar with it. This is what it says In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here we have it, the very first two verses of the Bible. And these verses are loaded, and so we need to pause here for a moment and unpack what is being taught, particularly in verse 1. And the very first big idea that you should get from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is all about God. That is the big idea. It's not about creation, it's not about anything else, it's all about God. The opening words are, in the beginning, God, and that is the focus here. In the beginning, God was there. He was around when all of this, look outside your window frame and all of this began. He, therefore, is timeless. God is unbound. He is beyond this time and place. And this is the context for everything. This is the context with which we live in today. And so as Christians, this is the first big idea of what we believe. We actually believe in one God. That's what you actually believe as a Christian. You don't believe in a God who was made. You believe in a God who just is, who was, who has always been and who will always be. God doesn't come into existence here in Genesis. He just simply is. God exists before matter, before anything and anyone else. This is extraordinary, right? In other worldviews, the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea monsters, and, and often they're, they're often the things that are the powerful deities. But in, in, in context of this opening section of Genesis... Those things are merely the creatures or the things which display the one true God's power and skill. And so this brings us into the second idea that we've got here in Genesis chapter 1, and that is that God created the heavens and the earth. And so we learn here that God is active, he's innovative, he's creative, God takes initiative And and I think it's awesome that God God is able. He just doesn't have these grand ideas, but he's got grand ideas that are able to be implemented so mightily and powerfully with just his spoken words as we come to see. He creates all things. It's important to notice here that the heavens and the earth, this is not talking about the the globe and, and the stars. This is talking... This is about everything above your head. This is how the original hearers would have read this, right? This is everything above your head and everything below your feet. Um, And and in this phrase, this is talking about all-encompassing, everything. And so keep in mind your historical context as you read these two verses. The ancient Hebrews did not have in mind the solar system when they read Genesis chapter 1. When it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they are not thinking Saturn out there. They're not thinking about the solar system as you and I think about it. And they're thinking primarily about the focus of these verses, which is about God and his work in creation of everything, everything above your head, everything below your feet. This is about a revelation from God in Genesis chapter 1. This part of the Bible is talking about an individual, about God and his work. Now, uh, uh, this, we've got to, to realise that as we read Genesis chapter 1, uh, that this isn't dealing with the modern questions of the cosmos. Uh, historically, the original hearers didn't know, like I said, about the stars. Um, they, they didn't know that the stars were suns. They, they did not know that the earth was spherical and moving through space. They, they didn't know that the sun was further away from the moon, or even all that further away from even the birds that were flying in the sky. They believed that the sky, in fact, was material, not, not vaporous. They believed that it was solid enough to support the residents of, of deity as well as holding back the waters. That's why the sky was blue in their mind. They believed there was water on the other side of this great barrier up there in the sky. And it's important to say this because they thought about the cosmos in an ancient way, not in a modern way like you and me. But what's interesting is that as we read these verses, we see that God doesn't think it's important to change their thinking about those cosmological things. Instead, God makes a very big and simple point here, and it's all about him. The opening verse of this Bible Bible chapter, Genesis chapter 1 of this book, the whole Bible, is it about God exists and he is creative. And his creative activity primarily has the whole world in view. Notice here that in Genesis chapter 1, there are no political overtones. There's no reference to the nation of Israel. There's no reference to Jerusalem or even the temple. The account doesn't focus on one particular people, nation, ideal or institution. What comes first here is God and his involvement with the world. And interesting, later in Revelation, we see the same thing. God and his engagement in the world. God and his engagement in the new creation in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So when you think about the Bible as a whole, we've got Genesis chapter 1, which is the first book stop, and Revelation 21 with the new creation, that's the second one. And this all sits together so neatly here, doesn't it? See, I think that within these first two lines of the Bible, we actually find ourselves with an evangelistic call. A call to challenge the norms of the surrounding nations of the world. A challenge to the nations who worship the creation or the creature often. These opening verses hold out a very serious basic theology. And that is that there is one true and living God. He has always been. He will always be. He is the creator of everything above your head and below your feet. He is the king of everything. And he alone is worthy of your worship. Now pause here for a moment and just think about your job here at Broughton. Is this your call for the students or the community here at Broughton? Do you put this evangelistic call to people that you meet here at Broughton? Do you tell that God exists and that he is the king and he is the creator and he is the one who ought to be worshipped? We don't want to encourage worship of the things that are created, we want to encourage worship of the creator. Now, with this in mind, the chapter now continues, right? And the writer puts before us the way in which God brings order and structure. We read on and we see this mighty God, our mighty God, who does forming and filling of his creation. We read about God who creates with intention and purpose. He is not creating in some haphazard, chaotic or in some slapdash way. Uh, And so um, you'll have seen, uh, as we we heard Genesis read to us at the very beginning from Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 31, these days of creation as God speaks and things are made over and over again. Uh, And literally, we need to say that there are literally hundreds and thousands of words that are written about this section of the Bible, right? About God's work in creating all things. But the big thing to notice here is that this is God's creation and God is so very intentional in his creation. Now here we discover six days of order and intention. We see God forming and filling his creation. He forms something, but he has intention in his mind to fill it with things. He creates the space, but then he fills that space with the stuff. Now, I, you, you, if you've got the outline open in front of you, um, you will see that I've given you a little table. It looks like, hold on a second, um, it looks like this. Um, so we can see this forming and filling. So um, when, we, when we think about these, these days of creation, this, this is a helpful framework for you to think about as you think about Genesis chapter 1. On day one, God creates light and darkness in verses three to five. And so we see that, first of all, he he creates it, and in verse four, it's good. On day two, he creates the sky and the seas, that's in verses six to eight. On day three, he creates land and vegetation in verses nine to thirteen. In verses fourteen to nineteen, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he creates the sky and the sea creatures. And on day six, he creates the land creatures and also humans. And then on day seven, which actually doesn't appear in chapter one, but it appears in chapter two, is that that's when God God rests from the creating work that he has done. But I think what's important for us to notice is that rather than read this text day one, two, three, four, five, six, like that, we need to instead read this from left to right. On day one, God creates light and darkness, but on day four, He gives structure to that. He fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, He creates the sky and the seas, but in the sky and the seas, He creates the sky and the sea creatures. On day three, He creates the land and the vegetation, and then for the land and the vegetation, He creates the land creatures and the humans. You see, here we've got this great moment where God creates everything. Sorry, where God creates everything according to his good intention and his purpose. I think it's great as well that God looks at his creation and as he does this forming and this filling, that he sees that it is good. And it's good on day one. By the way, did you notice it's not good on day two? It doesn't say it's good, but it is good, nevertheless. Because we know on day verse thirty in verse thirty one, after he's done all his creating, he says it's very good. But anyway, this, this refrain is repeated over and over again. God creates on day one, and it is good. Day three, and it is good. Day four, and it is good. Day five, and it is good. Day six, and it is good. He looks at all of what he's created, and it is very good. God is very intentional with his creation. He gets what he wants when he creates. As an aside, I don't actually think that this good or this very good word that we see in Genesis is synonymous with perfect. People are held back in creation, aren't they? They're they're held back in lots of different ways. They're, They're held back from the fruit that they can eat, which we discover later on. And we also see that they're held back even in the way in which they engage with God. God comes and he walks in the garden in the cool of the day, but he's not sitting in the very middle of the garden, giving light to the whole world like he is in Revelation. And I think that's where we see perfection in this new heavenly city. In the end, when God finally brings recreation and he perfects everything then. What we have here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 31, to get back to that text is we have a beautifully crafted poem um, or a beautifully crafted song all about God and his historical work in creating all things. And this should blow us away. Of course, so as, as we look at these verses, our minds are swayed, aren't they, to, to consider the things of science. And before I say a few words on this, I think you need to bear in mind the things that I've already said about the purpose and the intention of this chapter. Um, This chapter is written in a different time and context of our own. Science was not the goal of Genesis chapter 1. This isn't something that is written to answer the how of this world, but rather the who of this world, the who of creation. This isn't a book of modern cosmology, and if we try to make it do so, then we actually end up making this text seek to say something that it never intended to say. This isn't supposed to be treated as a high-definition photo of creation, if you think about it like this. But rather, this part of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, should be treated as a a broad-stroked painting of what is happening when God created the heavens and the earth, when God created all things. But nevertheless, uh, we can't help but think about things like evolution, right? And I'm not going to say heaps about this, and if you want to know more about it, go and talk to... The head of science, uh, Nicole, she she knows heaps about this stuff, don't you, Nick? Um, But go and talk to her about it. uh, And in fact, pick her brain um, and ask her about evolution. Um, But all I want to say simply about evolution is that evolution is just simply change over time. And, And I think that we actually see this evidence of evolution all around us. And an obvious one about it is just simply in the heights of humans. I'm sorry, short people in the world, but yes, we are actually getting taller. I went to the rocks on the weekend, and as we went through some of the low buildings, like the, the old buildings and the rocks, I got to duck my head to go through the door frames. Why? Well, it's because the door frames were intentionally built for people who were much shorter back then. But now as time has gone on, our door frames are higher because as a race, we're getting bigger. Over time, we have bred with different people, and so we're creating taller people, and so now door frames need to be built to suit tall people. Maybe just looking at the year seven kids that are coming through, maybe, Mr. O'Connor, you need to reevaluate the door heights on our buildings, of our, our new buildings that are going over there. Maybe they need to be higher. Evolution is happening, change over time. It's something that we see all the time. Now, I don't want to say too much more but because evolution is a, is a complicated concept and there's lots to say. But I do think that we are naive to say that it isn't true. Nor that God did not use evolution to create all things. However, there is an issue. And the issue with accepting parts of evolution is in relation to time. People will say that the Bible can't be true because of evolution, because of time. Because of the contradictions that science presents with time and evolution versus the six days of creation. So so evolution, for that to work, we need time and Genesis only presents six days of creation, right? Plus one day where God rests. And so in your classroom, teachers, you might actually have a kid that might say, the Bible's wrong because of science, because of time, because of evolution. But actually, I think that as we consider this, we need to think carefully about literature here to get an answer. We've got to think about what the text is actually saying, um, the chapter here talks about different days on which God created. Day one, two, three, four, five, six. And we notice if, when you look closely at it that, that there was evening and there was morning on each day. But we need to ask, what does this day actually mean? In the Hebrew text, the word day is translated as yom. Y-O-M, yom. And it is talking about a period of time. And so when the Israelites read Genesis chapter one, they would have read this as a day on which God worked, a period of time when he worked. So think about it. Maybe, maybe your, your grandmother or grandfather might have said to you, back in my day, we never had those fandangled Xboxes and rollerblades. We had to walk 100 miles to school. Back in my day, that's how it was. Now, your grandma and your grandpa, they're not talking about one particular day, are they? They're talking about a period of time. Now, these seven days that we read in Genesis chapter 1, I think that they've been read by the original hearers as the work days of God when God made everything. I don't think that they're the six solar days of creation, the sun up, sun down days. In fact, even as we think about the structure of the days, remember. The first three days couldn't have been solar days because God created the sun and the moon on day four. How can you have solar days when the sun and the moon aren't even created yet? Day seven as well, if you have a look at day seven, we actually see that day seven in and of itself does not come to an end. That God rests from the work that he has been doing and then that's it. There's no morning and evening on the seventh day. All the other days they finish, but day seven does not end. What's interesting as well is in in, um, in Hebrews, um, it talks about, in Hebrews 4, it talks about that God is still in his rest. And in fact, as Christians, we believe that we will enter into his rest by faith in Jesus. Now we need to keep in mind that we only consider this question about time and day when we try to get this ancient cosmological moment of Genesis chapter 1 to fit in with our modern understanding of the cosmos, this, our modern understanding of creation. But really, this day question doesn't really matter when we make this passage about the one who it's actually about. This passage is about who? This passage is about God. This passage is about Him and His creating work As the king over everything. And as you consider this more, I think it's important to ask the question: how do you actually read this literature? So one thing that we wrestle with as we read the Bible is the difference between what is literal and what is literalistic. So take, for instance, the phrase: the Year 12 student, sorry, the year 12 student's car was flying out of the student car park. Now, the literalistic meaning is that there's a student with a flying car and they're leaving the student car park. But the literal meaning of that is that there is a car that is going super fast. And we actually do that all the time when we read the Bible. We think about the Bible in literalistic and literal ways. So in Genesis chapter 6, for example, if you flick over to Genesis 6 verse 6, you see that God's heart is deeply troubled just before he sends the flood on the whole earth. Now, that doesn't mean that God's heart actually carries emotion. That doesn't actually mean that God actually physically has a heart that, that pumps blood either. In this instance, we use the context of the passage to understand that God was deeply moved by the troubling scene that he saw below on the earth. And think about as well with God and he's, he's, as he speaks out creation. You, you notice that as God speaks, he says, let there be light and boom, there was light. Now, I don't think that this actually means that God has an actual voice box like you and me. But it does mean that God commands creation. He commands creation with authority and power. And what he wants is what happens. There's no chance happening here of creation. This is God's intentional work. And that's what's being created. This was being communicated Sorry, when it says that God speaks out the words. He doesn't have a literal voice box. The Bible says that as well, in other places, that that the earth doesn't move. Did you know that? In in 1 Chronicles 16, in Psalm 93 verse 1, in Psalm 104 verse 5, and in 1 Samuel 2, it says that the earth is secure and firm and that it does not move. Now, back in 1543, there was a guy called Copernicus, and, and as well later on, you will have heard of guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they used those Bible verses to actually refute the scientific claims that the earth was moving and the earth was rotating around the sun. They said, no, that can't be true because the Bible says that the earth is still and established and it will not move. But of course, we've got to read these verses carefully, don't we? This is what we think about literalistically versus literal. What is the literal meaning? Well, the literal meaning of those verses is that God has established all things, isn't it? that God is the creator, that God is the king over all. He is the one who is sovereign over everything. And so we can trust in him to keep things sure and steadfast. As we read the Bible, and in this instance, as we read Genesis chapter 1, we've got to remember that, yes, this is an important book. The Bible is a holy book that teaches us about God and his work in creation. But it is a book, nonetheless, And it needs to be treated as one and read and understood just as literature needs to be. Now to put that aside, let's just move on now and go, in this first chapter, we have the omnipotent God who goes about his work of creating. He's the only one. There is no peer, there is no competitor, there is no battle for God to accomplish so that he might attain his rule over creation. The sun and the moon aren't his rivals, but they are his creations. This is an all-powerful God who simply speaks and creation is done. God here also, what we see is that God is a lawgiver. He divides light from darkness and land from sea. He names them. He appoints stars and for signs, for fixing of time. He sets boundaries for natural order. That animate creation is commanded to perform in a certain manner. Um, Species have set roles. And when God looks at all of his creation in verse 31, it is very good. It is according to his intention and his purpose. It's what he set out to do. So as we pop out the other side of Genesis 1 and as we consider God and his work in creation, what is our response to this? Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. See, God loves an inquiring mind. God has done great things. His creation is wonderful and it ought to be pondered and investigated. Did you know that God invented taxonomy? And we see that in chapter 2, where God says to Adam, Name all the animals. So God brings all the animals to Adam and he names them one by one. God created science, he created taxonomy. Even in chapter 2, verse 12, we see that there's a description of, of the Garden of Eden and, and it's described that there is gold and onyx and resin there in the garden. Why is that there? Well, I think it's there so that it would be dug up. That's why God puts gold and resin and onyx in the ground so that people will go out and do good geology. So they would dig up the earth and discover these things, ponder the works of God. God has made all things. He is the king who has called into existence. And as his creations, we ought to investigate it. We ought to look at it. We ought to wonder about it. But we ought to know that God made it. And he made it all according to his intention and his purpose. Psalm 8 should be familiar to you. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? The creative work of God is something to be captivated by, isn't it? It is so vast and so incredible. God is so mighty and powerful and yet Psalm 8 tells us that God is still mindful about us. And as John three sixteen reminds us that God is so mindful of us that he sent his only son for us so that we would not perish but so that we would have eternal life. I wonder if you understand the magnificence of this. That God would care enough for tiny little you. To help you get some scale about this, something that's helped me and I often say with students is to consider the size of the Milky Way galaxy. If the Milky Way galaxy was the size of North America, right? the Milky Way galaxy, if that was the size of North America, then our solar system would fit into a coffee cup. Isn't that extraordinary? Our solar system is in here, but then in the solar system is planet Earth and on planet Earth is little you. And meanwhile, this coffee cup sitting in the middle of North America. Isn't that extraordinary? God is concerned with you. The creator of all things is concerned with you so much that he would send his only son for you. See, To land this, we need to do things here at Broughton which wake students up to the significance of God, the Creator, who is God, the King. We need to help students to see and to know the God of the cosmos. You teachers and everyone else, we're we're all together, we need to make it our goal to draw people's attention to God. We need to blow their little minds I mean, it helps students to be enthralled by God. In the holidays, we went down the south coast with the kids and we dug this massive hole and the kids got all sandy. And I was sitting there with, with both Fletcher and Wesley and I was brushing the sand off their bodies and there was some sand on their hands and I was brushing the sand off their hands and I said to Fletch, "So said, Fletch, can you count the amounts of grain of sand just in your hand? And he said, no way, Dad, that'll take ages. I said, what about this? And I picked up a scoop of sand and I said, count that sand. And he said, I couldn't do that. I said, what about just the sand on the seashore here? He goes, no way. I said, what about the sand in every beach in the whole world? Could you do that? And he said, "Nope." I said, but do you know that the Bible says that God knows how many grains of sand there are on the beach? And then I said, do you know that God even knows how many hairs are on the top of your head, even my head? Every person's head, God knows. That's how well God knows you. In the vastness of creation, God is concerned with you, Fletch. He's just like, wow, Dad, that's cool. So we need to blow students' minds more and more with the creation of this world to help kids to know God more. And so to help you to do that, I want to give you a phrase um, that you might be able to use in the classroom or you might be able to use in the office or you might be able to use just with parents out in, the, out in the car park. And the phrase is, that came from the mind of God. It's not a hard phrase. It might seem like a dorky phrase, but it is true. And we're raising people's awareness to the mind of God, the creator. So woodwork teachers, for example, the next time you, you rip a piece of timber through the middle and you, you're about to get going and talk about joins or something that you're going to do, stop for a moment and look at the grain in the timber and say, look at this grain. Isn't it beautiful? And But then say, That came from the mind of God. The next time you kick a football out in the field with a group of students and and the ball spins and as it spins it lifts up into the sky. Talk about physics, sure, but make sure you say that physics came from the mind of God. The next time you look at classifications of different animals or the next time you note the geography around you. And more and more, these different things that come up around us all the time in schools use the phrase, that came from the mind of God. And I think we've got to do that more because the more enthralled by God kids are, the more likely they are to give themselves to him. I also want to say that you and I, we need to be doing big thinking about these things for ourselves. If you're a Christian, then that means that you actually believe in the one God who made and who rules all things. But I will ask the question, are you working to grow your knowledge so that you can grow what our students know and believe? It's one thing to think about our world academically, but are you thinking about it theologically so that you can point students to the God who made everything? Earlier, I spoke about the motivations that we have as Christians in a Christian school. Now, I'm sure we have a motivation to see people become Christians, but we need to think bigger than just this here at Broughton as well. What happens when the student in your class leaves Broughton and they go to university or they go into the workforce? Are they equipped to go on to think further about the KLA that you have engaged them with? Can they think about it from a Christian worldview? Can they hold their own Christian ground in an ethics lecture or a sociological tutorial or in a history lesson or just as they wire together a house as a tradie, as an electrician? How will our students engage practically in this world after coming to real terms with the theological basis of Genesis chapter 1? You see, what you do here at our college matters. So what are you doing here at our college to help students To move on and continue on here in truth and knowledge of the creating God and King. It needs to be more than just simply praying at the beginning of a lesson. It needs to be more than just inserting a little Christian perspective sentence at the beginning of your program. It needs to be more than just supporting biblical studies in our school. It needs to be more than just making students sit quietly in chapel. We need to blow students' minds with the glory of God as we engage with his creation. Kids need to come face-to-face with God, their creator and their king. We are not here to produce students who are simply scientists, geographers, mathematicians and historians. We're here to help students to engage with God's wonderful world so that they would engage with the God who made it And they would worship him. Let's pray now and let's ask God to help us to be productive as we do that together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your wonderful word. And thank you that as we read Genesis 1, we come face to face with you, our creator and our God. Help us to fall on our knees before you. Help us to worship you for your greatness in all of creation, above all of creation. But Lord, help us to think intentionally and purposefully about how we engage people here at Broughton with the truth of your word about you, God, the creator and the king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can get in contact with me via Twitter at mrkschroeder Or on the Anchor app, you can actually leave a voice message. I'd love you to do that and I might include it in the next podcast. Catch you later.